Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. This is Christy Hodgen, and I'm reading from my book, Elegies for the Broken Hearted. Every family had one, and you were ours. The chump, the slouch, the drunk, the bum, the forever newly employed, garbage man, fry cook, orderly, delivery truck driver, and the forever newly unemployed. I didn't need that shit, you'd say. The chain-smoking screw-up with the muscle car, an acorn brown 442 Cutlass Supreme named Michelle, the love of your life. Let's see what this baby can do, you'd say, all six of us cousins piled in the back, and how we screamed when you rolled down the windows and put Michelle's pedal to the metal on Route 20, how we flew past those strip joints, those 24-hour diners, those squalid motels and scrap metal yards, behind which, in a sunken valley, our neighborhood of two-bedroom cinder-block houses sulked and cowered. The bachelor uncle, with the bloodshot eyes and five-day beard, come late to holiday dinners, rumpled shirt and jeans, breath like gasoline, Michael Timothy Beaudry, for a time you were ours. The 70s, Nixon and Carter, culture and counterculture, two roads diverged in a wood. You were 20, then 25, then 30, and all that time, it always seemed you were fresh out of boyhood. It seemed your proper life, as a school teacher or a fireman, as a husband and father, as an upstanding, tax-paying citizen, would begin directly. Although, what was the point? You had a bad heart, a weak valve that threatened to kill you at any moment, as it had your mother when you were only three. Off-limits to you was a host of activities, including, conveniently, service in the armed forces. And you made a sport of engaging in them in front of your sisters. With their hands on their hips, they watched you chase us around the backyard, toss us high in the air and catch us. Watched you play football with their husbands and boyfriends. Watched you drink and smoke and smoke and drink. All that was wrong with you they blamed on your heart. Your drinking, your drugs, your debts and your gambling, your sleeping around, the way you take a girl out for a week or so, bang her in Michelle's back seat, and then break her heart. You'd get yours, though, your sisters always told you. One of these days a girl would get to you, and the grief of losing her would kill you. Just you wait, they said, those three long-haired witches, those bitches, and how they were right. The way you could never keep an apartment for long, how you always came knocking at ungodly hours, standing on the front steps with your whole life stuffed in a duffel bag, how you went in an endless circle between Lily, Ellen, Margaret, from couch to couch to couch, all of this they blamed on that weak valve, his heart, his heart, his heart, they said, meaning much more than that, meaning you might have been better in ten thousand ways, meaning if only. 
In later years, though, after you'd left home for good without word of your whereabouts, your sisters spent their holidays sitting on those mic-grooved couches, eating their slices of pie, drinking their coffee, smoking their Virginia Slims, reading aloud to each other their horoscopes from the newspaper, just as they had done every night at the dinner table as kids. Pisces, Aries, Cancer, and then, for the hell of it, your Capricorn. Today, you might want to take some time away from your busy work schedule to spend with your family. In later years, on every one of those dreary holiday afternoons, they sat turning you over in their minds. They craned their heads toward the window whenever a car passed, and they decided they weren't quite sure it was your heart, after all, that had ruined you, decided you would have turned out the same regardless. In those days, they often said, it's not like there's blood between us. What was blood? Your father, Michael Beaudry Sr., widower, had married my grandmother, Virginia Mayhew Ney Bouvier, a widow with three girls, husband dead of cancer, and everyone had simply become, on legal documents and in restaurants, the Beaudrys, party of six. After that awkward first year, silence in the car, silence at the dinner table, things changed and it was difficult to remember what life had been like before. You became family. Your room simply became Michael's room, not the room Michael stole from Lily when his father married our mother, and now we have to sleep three in a room while he, a prince, has a room to himself. Soon enough, you were a typical brother, someone who ate more than his fair share of the mashed potatoes, someone who was allowed to wander around downtown afternoons unsupervised, someone who did not have to come home and put supper on, someone whose occasional chores, raking, putting out the trash, were a far cry from the day-in, day-out bitch of keeping up the household. Like any brother, you were not regarded by your sisters as an official member of the opposite sex. They did not care if you saw them with their hair in curlers, with toothpaste dabbed on their pimples. They did not care if you listened to their conversations about Dave Duncan and Jess Landry and Mike Murphy, the boys they loved. You were subjected to the kinds of abuse and bribery carried out exclusively on brothers. In the afternoons, your sisters stole your record player and installed it in their bedroom, took your favorite singers, how you loved to sing James Brown, Otis Redding, The Rolling Stones off the turntable, and replaced them with Elvis, Bobby Darren, Doris Day. In the evenings when you opened your bedroom window to smoke a cigarette, they ratted you out. Mom, Michael's smoking again, or came barging into your room demanding to be given a cigarette, too. This had been my mother's tack. She was your age. You were the babies of the family, born two months apart, in the same grade at school and in many of the same classes, you copied her homework, slightly altered the wording of her book reports, and turned them in as your own. She borrowed money from you. Saturday mornings you worked at a butcher shop, packing, but failed to return it. In your bedroom, the two of you stood shoulder to shoulder, blowing smoke out the window into the frigid New England air. Your window looked out on a high hill, atop which sat the state's mental hospital, a neo-Gothic castle, teeming with turrets and crockets, 
with a spooky clock tower at its center, whose tolling woke you hourly from sleep. And you waited, you and my mother, to be freed. Just like the madmen you imagined were staring back at you, you waited and waited and spoke of nothing but escape. My mother thought of California, you of New York. The minute you graduated high school, you would be gone. A duffel bag, a bus, a highway, gone. The two of you standing there surveying that dark neighborhood of narrow, close-built houses. The two of you standing there talking of escape, your breath fogging and mingling. The two of you standing there hatching plans that would fail and fail and fail. Wasn't this blood? You were an uncle to us, each of your sisters with two kids apiece, all girls. You were well-schooled in the standard avuncular maneuvers, the tickling of ribs, the artful belch, the plucking of noses from faces, the revolting turning inside out of eyelids. Every Labor Day, you drove us up to Hampton Beach and swung us around in the surf, washing machine, you called it, bought us ice cream and T-shirts, Oh, the smell of that shop, those iron-on transfers, plastic melting onto cotton. You had the most T-shirts of anyone I ever knew, shirts featuring the faces of John Lennon and Jimi Hendrix, one featuring Mick Jagger's lascivious tongue. Over the years, all of those shirts grew leprous, peeled away until it was no longer possible to tell what they had once been, unless you had known from the start unless you had been there to see things fall apart little by little, day by day, unless you were family. Once, because someone must have thought that such things made for happy childhoods, you dressed as Santa on Christmas Eve. Which house was it that year? All those houses and apartments, all those divorces and foreclosures and second marriages, all those exes and steps, I can't remember. In any case, you made an entrance, kicked open the front door. Ho, ho, you said, and you stood for a moment, shaking your belly like a goddamn bowl full of jelly. Sorry to use the door, but the chimney was on the fritz. You spoke in the booming sneer of W.C. Fields. This was how you imagined Santa would talk, a man beleaguered by his duties, a man sick up to here with kids and with no refuge but sarcasm. Someone, one of my aunt's husbands or boyfriends, asked you, How's it going, Santa? And what Santa said, what you said was, I'm effing busy, and vice versa. After a few beers, you settled on the couch, pulled each one of us onto your knee. Tell Santa what you want, you said. You were a poor choice for the role, young and trim, drunk and stoned, and we were not fooled. Your black hair curled out from underneath your cap. Your suit was too short in the sleeve and leg. The muddied cuffs of your jeans stuck out. Your gray eyes, your sweeping black eyebrows, the famous bump on your nose from the time you drunkenly walked into a sliding glass door. All of these features were unmistakably yours, not to mention your voice. When you were only five... A virus had scarred your vocal cords, and ever after, you'd spoken in the voice of a person gone hoarse from coughing, a voice wheezy and forced. Ever after, you'd sounded like a football coach making desperate pleas from the sideline, and there was no mistaking it. 
No, we were not fooled. Not for a moment did we fail to recognize you. Nonetheless, my sister and our cousins sat on your knee, naming their heart's desires. When it was my turn, I only pulled at your beard, which was made of cotton balls, and secured to your head with elastic, which could be pulled forward and snapped back in place again and again. And what would you like, little Mary Murphy, you said. I said nothing, just looked at you. Nothing, you said. How's about one of those diamonds your sister wants? I pulled at your beard, pulled it right off your face. You grabbed my jaw, brought my face right up to yours. Be a doll, you said, in your regular voice, and get Santa a beer. By the time you left, you were lit, as it were, like a Christmas tree. Ho-ho, you said, ho-ho. Like Nixon, you gave us a sweeping, two-armed wave, then out you went stumbling into the snow. No one thought to stop you. We were a family of bad citizens, drunk drivers and tax evaders, people who parked in handicapped spaces and failed to return shopping carts to their collection stands. In traffic jams, we sped up the breakdown lane, then weaseled our way out of tickets by crying. For special occasions, we bought new clothes and wore them with the tags tucked in, then returned them to Filene's basement. We wrote bad checks and faked our ages for discount admission to movies. We ate from other people's plates. And so it was, silent night, holy night, out you went stumbling through the snow. Wasn't this blood? You were more blood to us than our own fathers. All six of us cousins had fathers who had run off. These words said so often together they became one. Run off, run off, run off. All six of us, Ginny and little Ellen, belonging to Lily, Carrie and little Lily, belonging to Ellen, Melinda and me, belonging to Margaret, had fathers and stepfathers and second stepfathers, the beautiful Baudry girls having, it was widely known, a penchant for marriage and an even greater penchant for divorce. The beautiful Baudry girls being, it was said, difficult to live without, but impossible in the end to live with. My mother was the favorite and worst of them, with five husbands. Melinda and I were born of her two-year marriage to Michael Murphy, high school sweetheart and union plumber, Sagittarius, blackout alcoholic. Next, she married another Michael, the devoted and long-suffering Michael Collins, high school history teacher and model ship enthusiast, Libra. Her third marriage, to a large appliance salesman named Bud Francis, cancer, lasted eight months and was sometimes forgotten about altogether. Her fourth marriage, to the mechanic Walter Adams, Libra, 20 years her senior and black, how fiercely this word was whispered amongst our family, black, 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 produced one child, Felice Shirley Adams, who lived, blue and squirming, for less than a day. Finally, she married the Reverend Les Witherspoon, a preacher she'd seen on cable television raging about the end of the world, a Scorpio if she'd ever seen one. Later in life, 
I would try to explain these things to boyfriends, the who's who of the Beaudry Murphys, all of those X's and steps and halves, those firsts and seconds and thirds, those relations once and twice removed, but no one could keep up. How many mics are we talking about here? said one. Four? Five? It's like Faulkner threw up. October 1980, a chill in the air, and we'd just moved, my mother, Melinda, and me, out of Michael Collins' middle-class house and into the first-floor apartment of a brick fourplex. I was eight, Melinda ten. We were still young enough to go along with what our mother told us, that our new apartment was a palace, a coveted slice of real estate in a fashionable neighborhood, that things were looking up that we couldn't help but be happy here, that soon Michael Collins would hardly miss us and that we would hardly miss him, that we had been family for a time, true, but not the kind of family that lasted forever, not blood. Narrow but long, with glossy hardwood floors, the new apartment had the feel of a bowling alley. There we were, Melinda and me, running through the living room and kitchen and then launching ourselves down the long hallway toward the bedrooms, sliding in our socks. This is what we were doing when you came knocking. We raced each other to the door. Who could it be? And found you standing there, returned to us like a biblical character. What a surprise, we said. But of course it wasn't. Of course we were always waiting for you. Guess who died, you said and stepped inside. This was your favorite game. When you showed up after a long absence, this was how we caught up, saying, guess who, guess who, guess who, like it was some kind of game show. Guess who moved away? Guess who got married or divorced, fired or promoted, arrested, hospitalized, deported? Guess who disappeared without a trace? Guess who got cancer? Guess who got knocked up? Guess who's dating a Puerto Rican? Guess who's gay? Who, said my mother. She called from the kitchen where she'd been sitting at the table. In that apartment, we were making do with a card table and folding chairs, with mattresses on the floor, with a 13-inch black-and-white television also on the floor, with a plaid sleeper sofa we'd seen on somebody's lawn with a sign pinned to it, Take me somebody, please. All morning, making circles in the classifieds with a green pen. Who died? Sal de Donna, you said. Cancer. Jesus, said my mother. What kind? I don't know, you said. Just cancer. You collapsed on the couch, sighed. We sat on either side of you, Melinda and me, and you put your arms around us. You stank of tequila. Guess who's Jewish now, said my mother. Julie Smith. Married a Jew. Guess who's driving a cab at night, you said. That midget used to live down the street. What's his name? Midgey, said my mother. That's right, Midgey, you said. Midgey LaRusso. Guess who walked out on her husband, my mother said, appearing from the kitchen. It was three in the afternoon, but she was still in her bathrobe and slippers, matching purple velour, a gift from the devoted and long-suffering Michael Collins. She loved nothing better than a bathrobe and slipper set. I heard, you said. I kind of feel bad for the guy. 
I kind of feel bad, said my mother. I couldn't fit the bigger TV in my car. That's a shit TV, you said. It was running, as always, dim and flickering. It was a Saturday, which meant TV 38 was playing the kinds of movies which produced in my mother unreasonable expectations about men, romance, and the tendency for wealth and good fortune to bestow themselves by happenstance on the world's most beautiful people. My mother was a beautiful person. Hardly a day went by without someone telling her she ought to be in pictures. You're the spitting image, people said, of Liz Taylor. Anyone ever tell you that? Spitting image. I bet you get that all the time, don't you? Well, I'm sorry, but it's true. And she'd come to believe this. She watched those movies and their stars, Doris Day, Audrey Hepburn, Marilyn Monroe, with desperate, angry longing. Other people were living the life she deserved. They were parading around in front of her in the minks and pearls and convertibles that were rightly hers, and she fumed. She studied those movies as others studied the Bible and spent every Sunday afternoon scouring sails at Filene's basement, standing in its open dressing room, working her way into and out of various approximations of the outfits she saw on screen. Her wardrobe was legendary, spectacular, wildly impractical. Her closet was brimming with bright silks and subtle tweeds, peep-toe heels and fishnet stockings, faux furs, satin scarves. One day, she always said, regarding herself in the dressing room mirror, this will all pay off. On screen, Judy Garland sang Get Happy, and a dozen men in tuxedos collapsed at her feet. She was wearing a black jacket and nylon stockings, black heels. A black fedora was tilted on her head. What she had to say was this, that our troubles were meaningless and should be cast aside, that the suffering we endured would all be forgotten in the end, would be set ablaze in rapture. A line of static scrolled up the screen again and again, over and again. Judy finished her song, and you said, Guess who's in love? My mother sat tossing out names, offering the most brutal and heartless people she could think of, Fran Palmentaire, Sheila Scalia, but you kept shaking your head. You kept smiling. Finally, my mother said, I give up. Me, you said, stabbing your chest with your thumb. Me. Yeah, right, my mother said. She snorted. She scoffed. She said, bullshit. But from the way you sat there, bent at the waist and holding your head in your hands, anyone could see it was true. Anyone could see you had fallen at last. Anyone could see you were, as you might have called it, screwed. Girls, my mother said to us, go to your room. This was pointless. From our room, we could hear everything. At night, we lay together on our mattress and listened to every word our mother spoke into the phone to her sisters, to Michael Collins, sometimes even to our father. But we went anyway. You talked about this girl for the longest time. Her name was Sam Keller, and she was a 19-year-old cashier at Stop and Shop. You'd met her, you said, just like every other girl, in a bar. 
You'd been out with friends, watching the Red Sox blow another lead, and there she was, sitting across from you, with a group of her friends, drinking a Shirley Temple, twirling a finger through her ponytail. Red hair, you said. I'm a sucker for red hair. You kept staring at each other. Finally, you got up the nerve to ask her out on a date, and she'd agreed. On the first date, you'd taken her to a Mexican place. You'd ordered the beef enchilada, she the bean burrito, and you'd sat at a small table covered with a red-and-white checked vinyl tablecloth, a table by the window looking out at the street. You'd gotten to know each other in the way that people do on first dates. She lived with her parents, devout members of a religion you'd never heard of. She was the oldest of three sisters. She was working as a cashier, but what she really wanted to do was hair, beauty school, or maybe open a bed and breakfast. All through dinner, she'd eaten with her mouth full and chattered on and on in a high, tinny voice about this bed and breakfast, somewhere up the Cape, or maybe New Hampshire, she said, a fireplace in every room and four-poster beds. She'd stayed at a place like that once with her grandmother, and she'd wanted to stay forever. It was like any other date, you said. You'd been bored, struggling to pay attention, stifling yawns, You'd sat scrutinizing her features, brown eyes, pale skin with a veil of tiny brown freckles, her lips chapped, her earlobes fat, her body short and thick. Altogether, she was pretty, but not beautiful, what you'd call screwable. After dinner, you drove her home, and without much longing, you'd tried to kiss her. You'd rested your arm on the seat in such a way that it was more or less around her but she'd slipped out of the car without your making further progress. You watched her walk into her house, her ponytail swaying behind her, and then you drove off, feeling sure of yourself. It seemed to you a game had begun, a game which would end with the two of you in bed together. You'd gone out a few more times, ten to tell you the truth, you said, and each date had ended the same way, with her stepping out of your car as indifferently as she would have stepped from a taxi cab. On your last date, you'd gone after her, followed her to her door, grabbed her arm, but she'd broken away from you and closed the door in your face. After that, you'd called and called, left messages with her mother and sister, even with her father, but she never called you back. Your voice was like a machine, something droning in its labor. All your words were heavy and flat and ran together. You kept saying, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. This girl, she was average-looking, petty in her interests, dull, young, prudish, and none of this made sense to you. But I guess you said, that's love. You said you'd gone back to the Mexican place a few times, alone, and relived the date. You'd ordered the enchilada for yourself and even a burrito for her and sat there eating them both. You'd tried to remember everything you'd said, everything she said. You'd written all you could remember on cocktail napkins. Don't tell me, my mother said. You're carrying around a napkin in your wallet. Oh, Jesus. She talked a lot about her dog, you said. A corgi named Snuffles. "'Snuffles,' my mother said. "'Snuffles?' "'I think that's its name,' you said. 
Jesus, I know, it's so stupid. Jesus H. Christ, my mother said. When she was baffled, this was all she could think of, Christ and his various pseudonyms, derivatives, and embellishments. She laughed, a short, loud bark, whose sound filled the air for a second and then died like a popped balloon. I know, you said, I know, it's pathetic. You said you'd lost your latest job tending bar because you kept calling in sick, preferring instead to sit in your car in the parking lot of Stop and Shop, watching Sam Keller ring groceries. Christ, our mother said, on a cracker. For a while you fell quiet, and Melinda and I listened to the television. Every business in our city, it seemed, was failing, promoting its own ruin with crazed commercials. The spokesman for a furniture store cried, Everything must go, total liquidation closeout. Upstairs, the neighbors called to one another from one end of their apartment to the other, curt phrases of inquiry and accusation. What'd you do with the damn scissors, said the man. I don't know, said the woman. Get off your lazy ass and look yourself. The woman was hugely pregnant, and we were dreading the delivery of the baby, its pending squalling. Long gone were Michael Collins and his pleasant three-bedroom ranch. This was the life we were living now, apartment life, and what one did in this life was go around pretending one could hear nothing and see nothing and smell and taste and feel nothing and remember nothing, nothing, nothing at all. When you spoke again, it was to ask the question Melinda and I had been waiting to hear. Hey, you said, as though the idea had just occurred to you. Can I stay here a while? To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.